Amen. I would encourage you to have your Bible open to Philippians 2. We're going to work through these verses this morning. We've read them. We're going to work through this passage. There's an outline in the bulletin. You can track along with the message. And as Jake mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning at the end of the sermon. We will not be coming by with the elements. And so if you need those, they're available uh, down at the table on either side of the worship center here on the, on the ground floor. You're welcome to get up and grab those if you'd like to participate in the Lord's Supper with us this morning. So our summer sermon series is Knowing Jesus. We're almost to the end. We've spent the summer just thinking about what the Bible says about who Jesus is and why those truths matter to people like you and me. We've talked about Jesus as the ruler and our Savior, Jesus as our friend, Jesus as the faithful one, Jesus as the mediator, Jesus as the one who's returning. Last week we talked about Jesus being gentle. Next week will be the last week in this series. We're going to talk about what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, and this morning we're going to talk about Jesus as the servant. I'll be honest with you, as I prepared for this message, I had the greatest struggle in picking the passage that I wanted us to look at. And there's a lot of different places in the Old Testament and the New Testament that you can turn to that talk to us, that explain to us what does it mean that Jesus is the servant. We've landed on Philippians 2. That's the passage that I've selected. But I want to mention a few other passages just in passing as we, as we jump into Philippians chapter 2. I want you to know that in the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Isaiah... He lived about 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. And in his book, which is a glorious, remarkable book, Isaiah has four songs. They're not all together. They're spread throughout the book, but four songs that go together. And Bible scholars call them the servant songs. They're four songs where Isaiah prophesies that the servant of the Lord will come. And according to Isaiah, the servant of the Lord will come to bring justice to the nations. The servant of the Lord would come to be a light for the nations. The servant of the Lord would come to suffer. And then the last of the servant songs, the greatest messianic prophecy in all the Old Testament, Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant of the Lord would come to suffer for the sins of his people. Our sins and our iniquities would be placed on the servant, and it would be the Father's pleasure, the Father's will to crush him so that we might be forgiven and that we might live. These are glorious songs all fulfilled in Jesus. So that's in the Old Testament. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus willingly accepts the position or the title of the servant. In fact, he says to his disciples that he wants them to serve each other and he wants them to look at Jesus himself as the model or the exemplar servant. So if you've read the New Testament, you know the disciples are often arguing, they're bickering, they're fighting about who's the greatest, who's the most important, and Jesus gets frustrated with them at times and he says to them in Mark 10, fellas, let the Gentiles, let the non-believers worry about titles and positions and power and authority and who's in control and who's the boss. Let lost people worry about those things. You 
worry about serving each other. And to help them understand what it looked like for someone to serve others, Jesus put forth himself as an example. And he said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying to the disciples, I'm here not so that you can serve me. I don't know if you listened to the song we just sang. We sang to the God who needs nothing. He does not need you or me or any of us to serve Him. He, in His grace and His mercy, came to serve us. And He did that by sending His Son who laid down His life as a ransom for many. And Jesus, who did that, calls you and I to seek to follow His example, to be servants in serving each other. Now, that's a glorious thought that Jesus came in at the cross He served us by dying for us. But very quickly, I want you to understand, that's not the end of Jesus serving His people. Because there's a parable in Luke chapter 2. And you can read this for yourself and you can sort it out. You read the parable. There's a master and the servants. And the servants are waiting for the master to come back. And they're excited and they're eager. And they're looking forward to the return of the master. And when the master comes, you expect him to start barking out orders. Because that's what masters do to servants. And instead, the master comes back to serve his servants. And it's a beautiful picture of what we're going to celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper together this morning, that in the end, Christ will gather His people around a great table, and He will serve His people, and we will celebrate His life, His death, and His resurrection. All of that by way of introduction to say this, Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the servant. Paul sets Jesus forth in Philippians 2 as the one who had incomparable glory, who laid it aside to become a servant, who in the end will be the recipient of unmatched glory. Let's go back in time, a little over 12 years ago. Uh, February 2010, there was a Super Bowl played. Super Bowl was Super Bowl 44. It was played between the Saints, New Orleans Saints, and the Colts, Indianapolis Colts. And if you watch this game, Super Bowl 44, you may remember that at halftime, the Saints were behind. It was 10 to 6, and they were struggling. Two field goals, they just couldn't get things going. The Saints were going to kick off. They were going to have to give the ball back to the Colts to start the second half. And they did something that no one had ever done, no one expected. They came out of the second half, and they kicked an onside kick. It was a brilliant call. They got the ball. They drove right down the field, scored a touchdown, took the lead. Now, the Colts took the lead back, but then the Saints sort of found their rhythm, and the Saints ended up winning the Super Bowl. So Super Bowl 44, uh, TV people tell us that some 106 million people watched Super Bowl 44. At the time, it was the most watched Super Bowl ever. Now, I'm just throwing that in as bonus because it's the middle of the summer, and we don't have any basketball or football for a long time, and you need a little football fix. So there's your football fix. Let me tell you what happened after Super Bowl 44. CBS debuted a brand new TV show, February 7, 2010, right after the Super Bowl. The TV show was called Undercover Boss. Anybody ever watched an episode of Undercover Boss. I read this week that the first episode 
of the series that debuted right after the Super Bowl. Almost 40 million people watched it. And of all episodes of all quote-unquote reality shows in the 2010s, this was the most watched episode of all of them. People loved this show. They were excited for this show. And they watched this show for 11 seasons. It kept getting renewed year after year after year. And if you've watched the show, you understand the premise is the CEO or the president or the boss was taken and put in an entry-level position. And nobody knew who he or she was. And they were given the lowest job in the company. And they were just supposed to work like everyone else. And there were cameras watching everything and seeing how people interacted with them. And people liked to watch this on TV. I think part of us liked to watch the CEO of a fast food chain struggle to keep up flipping burgers. And there was the shift manager saying, faster, faster, you're no good at this, you're terrible. How did you ever get a job in this company? And there's something in us that says, yeah, the CEO, he thinks he could do my job. He doesn't know what it's like to do my job. And people liked that. People liked the dynamic of watching how other employees related to this entry-level person who they thought was just one of their peers but was really the boss in disguise. People liked that element of the show. And there's something in us just from a storytelling perspective. We like stories where a great person is in disguise and no one realizes it. Tolkien played off of this in The Lord of the Rings. He introduces you to a, a ranger named Strider and he seems like a nobody, but if you keep reading, you realize he's actually the king. Aragorn, the king of Middle-earth. If you like Star Wars, you know that at one point in the story you meet this little boy on Tatooine and his name is Luke and nobody thinks much of him as sort of a forgotten planet, but he's kind of important to the story of Star Wars. He's a great Jedi and he saves the day in the end. Maybe you've read the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a story about a man named Jesse who had all sorts of sons, and he called his sons in because one of them was going to be anointed king, but it wasn't the oldest or the next oldest or the next oldest. All the way down, it was the shepherd boy, David, the youngest, out in the field, the one that everyone forgot about, the one that no one suspected would be a king who was the real anointed king of Israel. We love these stories because they have an echo of the true story of the gospel that we're going to talk about in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, Paul's going to present us with the person in the work of Jesus Christ. Someone who began at the top, who then became a servant, who then was exalted back to the top. And we're just going to trace this through as Paul describes it in Philippians 2 this morning. Here's the question we'll start with. In presenting Jesus... As the model servant, what did Paul say about the person of Christ? And you could add to that the work of Christ. Now, one warning before we jump in. The things that we're going to talk about in Philippians 2 are not putting the cookies on the lowest shelf. I mean, the things that Paul's describing here are the kinds of things that keep you up at night and they keep your head spinning and you say, I don't quite compute and process and understand how all of these things can be, but as Christians, we receive them by faith. This is the deep end of the doctrinal pool, and we're jumping right in with Paul. So, number one, Paul acknowledged the preexistence 
of the servant. The pre-existence. Pre-before existed. He existed before something. Look what he says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, was... That's looking backwards. He was in the form of God, but he did, not, he did not count or consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was in the form of God, but there came a moment where he did not cling to that position or that status or that right, and he willingly gave it up. And what Paul's describing in those verses very subtly is the preexistence of Jesus. And so if we wanted to be doctrinally precise, we would talk about the person of Jesus and we would say some 2,000 years ago in space-time history, Jesus of Nazareth was born, not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. That happened. There was a moment where Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary and then he was born of the virgin. That happened and he had a birthday. However... What Paul is reminding us here, very subtly in verse 6, is that there never was a time when the Son of God did not exist. There was a moment when Jesus was born, but there never was a time when the Son of God did not exist. He was pre-existent. You see this in John chapter 1, not just Philippians 2, but John chapter 1. John says this about Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and He was God. In the beginning. He didn't have a beginning. He was just there, eternally existing, the preexistent Son of God. Jesus prayed about this very issue in John chapter 17, His high priestly prayer that He prayed with the disciples before They went out to the Garden of Gethsemane the night when he was betrayed. He said in his prayer, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world ever existed, before an atom was created, God the Son shared a glory with God the Father. He had no beginning. Son of God eternally existed. He's pre-existent. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 1. By Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things. He comes before everything. And He had no beginning because in the beginning was just the Word and He was with God and He was God. He's eternally existent as God the Son. The word we would use here is He is pre-existent. Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Son of God eternally existed. He was pre-existent. Now, that's a big thought. Now we'll add to that a bigger thought. Number two. Paul acknowledges the incarnation of the servant. That word incarnation means taking on flesh. The servant who existed from eternity past in space-time history took on flesh. I heard something kind of disturbing this week. I want to warn you men about it. Hallmark is launching a Christmas 
movie-themed cruise this year. And I'm concerned for some of you men that your wife may approach you this summer or this fall and say, hey, we should go on a cruise. And I just want you to know you're being set up. This is all a ruse, and you need to do your homework. Which cruise, honey, do you think that we should go on? You go on this cruise, and everything apparently is designed to make you think you are living in a Hallmark Christmas movie. I would rather spend Christmas in Monahans. I don't know about you. No knock on Monahans. I'm just saying, I'm out. You've been warned, men. So I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about Christmas. I know we have stores in town that already have Christmas decorations out and for sale. If you'd like to uh, furnish your tree or whatever, you decorate your tree. You can go buy a tree. You can buy ornaments for your tree. Maybe what you think about at Christmas is a trip or a family get-together or a meal. Or maybe you think about Hallmark Christmas movies. I don't know what comes into your mind. But whatever comes into your mind when you think about Christmas, I pray that you think about the greatest miracle imaginable. The greatest miracle imaginable. We've talked about the pre-existence of the Son of God, the servant. Now we're talking about the incarnation of the Son of God. We're talking about Christmas. We're talking about space-time history where eternal God, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh, the Word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And the way that we would sort this out doctrinally, theologically is pretty simple. We would say that Jesus Christ was one person. He was one person. But we would also say that He had two natures. And this is different than you. You're one person with one nature. You're a human person with a human nature. Jesus was one person. He was not some sort of cosmic schizophrenic. One person But he had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Truly God, and he took on humanity so that he became truly human without ceasing to be God. And the way that those two natures hold together, work together, fit together, is what theologians call the hypostatic union. And it's a big, long doctrinal word, and really what it means is pretty simple. It means you can't take those two natures and mix them together to get a third thing. So in the South, we take sugar and we take tea and we mix them together and you get sweet tea. You get something different than both of those things individually. That's not what we're talking about where you take divinity and humanity and you mix it all together. They don't mix, but you also can't separate them because he's one person. There's more we could say. It's the most unbelievable, amazing miracle recorded in the Bible. It's the incarnation of the servant. And we should be struck by the mystery of it and humbled by the mystery of it, but we should also be struck by the humility of it. That the eternal Son of God, the servant who created everything in the beginning, would condescend. We sang about earlier Jesus condescending lowering himself to dwell among us and to take on humanity. This is what Paul describes in verse 6. He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. 
Now, some people will tell you that his emptying was taking all of his divinity and his God stuff in getting rid of that. But that's not what the text says. And that's certainly not what happened in the incarnation. He emptied himself, verse 7, by not getting rid of his godness, but by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He didn't take all his godness and set it aside. He retained his godness and he added to it a human nature. It's a miracle, I admit. It's the miracle of the incarnation. And it's what Paul describes in talking about the servant here. The miracle of the incarnation. Number three, Paul acknowledged the crucifixion of the servant. The crucifixion of the servant. Look at verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This goes all the way back to Mark 10.45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here Paul says that he humbled himself, marvel number one, he humbled himself to the point of death. Marvel number two, it was death on a cross. It was death in a way, in a form, that every Old Testament reading Jewish person would know meant that this man had been cursed by God. This is a really important truth. And it's dependent on the previous truths. The pre-existence of the servant and the incarnation of the servant. This is what it led up to. The crucifixion. Of the servant. And it's really the final piece of the gospel puzzle. The gospel is this puzzle that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you put this last piece in it. And the, the confusing part about the gospel up to the moment that Jesus was crucified is this How is it exactly that a holy, holy, holy God can actually live peaceably with sinful people? How does that happen? How is it possible? Last week, we read from Exodus 34. And last week, I intentionally stopped our reading where I stopped it for a purpose. I want to read all the verses we read from Exodus 34, and then I want to add nine more words. The very next nine words that come in the text. God speaking to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All that's where we, we stopped last week. But look at the very next nine words. But who will by no means clear the guilty? There's a lot of tension in that verse. It's gospel tension. And God intended that tension to be there. He intended Moses and the people and you and me to wrestle with this text and to say to ourselves, how is it exactly that this holy God can be merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and willing to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but he won't clear the guilty? I mean, after all, it's the guilty who need forgiveness. It's the guilty who have sin and transgression and iniquity and all of this filth that we need God to deal with. And this verse says that he's going to be both. But it, 
if he's going to forgive us, he's going to have to clear the guilty. But he says he's not going to clear the guilty. How is this tension resolved? And the answer is the cross. It's resolved at the cross. Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant songs. Our iniquities and our sins were laid on the servant. And the father crushed him. So that we could live. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The one who knew no sin became sin for us. That's the imputation of our sin, the crediting of our sin to the servant. It was placed on him so that we could become the righteousness of God. It's Galatians 3.13. It's obvious in the beginning that God places a curse on humanity because of their sin. And Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus was cursed by God when he was hanged on a tree. He bore the curse of God, the wrath of God. He was made sin for us so that the tension that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Exodus 34 would be resolved. How is God going to forgive sin while not clearing the guilty? Well, He takes the sin of the guilty and He imputes it to a son who is perfectly righteous, who pays the penalty in its fullness for His people to have life and to be forgiven. That's the crucifixion of the servant. Number four, Paul acknowledged the exaltation of the servant. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. That phrase highly exalted could literally be translated super exalted. Most Bible scholars say it's kind of a made-up, mash-up word that Paul just kind of conjured out of thin air to talk about how exalted Jesus is now is, that the Father exalted him, not just a little bit, not just a normal amount, not just a lot, but he highly exalted him. He super exalted him. He gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord all to the glory of God the Father. This is a, an amazing verse. What Paul's talking about is the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven. And he's saying that God has highly exalted the servant. He's no longer being humiliated. He's no longer being crucified. He's no longer suffering. But he's been exalted to the highest place in the cosmos. He's been given a name above every single name. And God the Father is sharing his glory with God the Son. That's an amazing verse when you think about Isaiah 42, verse 8, that says this, I am the Lord, that's my name, my glory I give to no other. The triune God will not share his glory with any lesser being. He refuses. But within the Trinity, God the Father is more than pleased to share his glory in his throne with God the Son. Which is why when you get to the end of this book, the end of the Bible, you continually read about one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. He has been highly exalted. And a day is coming when every tongue will confess the truth about Jesus and every knee will bow before Jesus and he will receive all of the glory. Some will confess and some will bow joyfully, gladly. Others will do it begrudgingly 
but all will do it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now let's just hit pause. I'm a preacher. And I stand up in front of you and I talk about things like pre-existence and incarnation and crucifixion and exaltation. And I'll just be honest. At times I hear what I'm saying and what I'm reading and I say to myself, who's going to believe this? I mean, this stuff is out there. At times when I talk about these things and you really dig into doctrine and theology about the person and the work of Christ and you move beyond the Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and you say, what does that mean? Well, it means preexistence and it means incarnation and it means crucifixion and it means exaltation. And we begin to talk about it, I think to myself, well, I might as well be describing a superhero movie. Or something. I mean, I might as well be talking about sci-fi. This is out there stuff. This is, this is otherworldly stuff. Guess what? It is otherworldly stuff. That's the whole point. It's that God the Creator entered the world He created to redeem sinful people. And there's a sense in which it's completely unbelievable. But there's another sense in which we gather together as the people of God. And together we say... No, we believe this. This is true. I want you to listen to Bible scholar Kent Hughes. This is a quote from his commentary on Philippians 2. These thoughts are not the wild notions of Paul's rabbinic imagination, nor are they the playground of theologians. This is what Christ Jesus truly did for you and me. His self-humiliation really did happen. Only it was more wrenching than we can imagine. And likewise, his super exaltation is beyond wonder. Yet, all of this is true. And it demands our beliefs. We're not just talking about Tolkien or Star Wars or sci-fi or fantasy. We're talking about truth. And we're talking about things that Christian people Believe, And that brings us to the idea of response. We've answered one question. What does Paul have to say about the servant? Here's question number two. In presenting Jesus as the model servant, how did Paul expect us to respond? Number one, Paul expects us to respond with faith. To believe. To put your faith in Jesus and to believe that these things are true. I think if you went out across Odessa this week, and you asked people, what does it mean to be a Christian? I think you'd get all sorts of answers. Things ranging from, we have to go here, you have to do this, or you have to give that, or you have to whatever. Most basically, this is what it means to be a Christian. It means that you believe these things are true. It means that you put your faith, your trust, your everything on the truthfulness of what we're talking about when we talk about pre-existence and incarnation and crucifixion and exaltation. These things are true, and as Christian people, we believe them. When a person, man, woman, boy, girl, believes these things for the very first time, none of us show up believing these things. There comes a moment in your life where God opens your eyes to these truths, and you put your faith in these gospel truths. And when that happens for the very first time, the Bible calls that believer to be baptized. Baptism is a person standing before God's people saying, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve death 
under the waters of judgment. But God in His grace and His mercy has raised me to new life through the finished work of His Son. The perfect work of His Son. And I believe what the Bible says about Jesus. And a person is baptized. And you know what? Some of you may need to be baptized. Some of you, as you sit in this room this morning, you say to yourself, there's come a point in my life, whether you know exactly when it was, where it was, or you don't, where you say, I believe these things. I believe that they're true. And can I be honest with you? You may be sitting in this room this morning saying, I can't believe that I believe them. But I believe them. I believe that these things are true. And you need to be baptized. Jesus calls you to do that. Now, every Sunday when we gather together as believers, we don't all show up in our swimsuits and rotate through the baptistry. We don't do that every week. But you know what we do on repetition? is We take the Lord's Supper together. And the meaning behind the Lord's Supper is essentially the same as baptism. Both of them involve confession, confession of our sin and our unworthiness. And both of them involve faith in the person and work of Jesus. When we're baptized, what we're saying is, I believe that Christ's death and resurrection counts for me. I believe it. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves over and over and over again, Jesus in his body bore my sins on the tree. The one who knew no sin became sin for me. He was cursed for me. The blood that he shed paid a ransom came to ransom sinners, and I believe that. So this morning, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus and you've been obedient to His command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you have the elements, I'll invite you to take those. You can open the side that has the bread. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and verse 24. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. You can open the side that has the cup. We'll read the very next two verses in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25 and 26. Paul says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In presenting Jesus as the model servant, how did Paul expect us to respond? Number one, with faith. Faith. We have faith because of the evidence of the resurrection. We have faith because the Spirit of God, when we hear the Word of God, convicts us and convinces us that these things are true. These things are so. And we have faith because this story, this otherworldly story 
not only saves us, but it changes us. So that brings us to the last point on your notes. Paul expects us to respond by following. Specifically, we're talking about following Jesus' example. The example he set in humbling himself to become a servant. is what we saw in Mark 10. Jesus wanted his disciples to serve each other. He set himself forward as an example of service. That's the same thing Paul is doing here in Philippians 2. If you're paying attention this morning, you notice that what we read earlier started in verse 1 and went to verse 11. And so far in the sermon, we've worked our way from verse 5 to verse 11, but we skip verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. And so I want us to go back and understand the first thing that Paul is saying to this church in Philippi. He's calling them to be unified as a church of the same mind, the same faith, the same love. He wants them to be spiritually on the same page, unified. And the key to that is by each person in that church thinking of others in the church ahead of themselves. Each person embracing humility and each person being willing to serve. So you read with me. These verses will be part of our prayer. Philippians 2.1 If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Father, as your people, we stop. We thank you for the truth about Jesus. It's a truth that in many ways seems unbelievable, and yet by your grace and by the work of your Spirit, we believe. We believe that these things are true. We believe that these things matter. We believe that Jesus, the pre-existent servant, took on humanity. He was crucified in our place. He was raised from the dead, exalted to heaven, and Lord, we believe a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, we want to be people on that day who joyfully and gladly acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Father, we pray for people in this room who need to be baptized. They believe the truth about Jesus. And they need to be obedient. We pray that you would give them boldness to do that. Father, we're thankful for the Lord's Supper, for the ongoing, perpetual, repeated reminder that we are unworthy, that Jesus came to seek us, to save us, to give his life as a ransom for his people. That in his body, he was punished for our sins, that with his blood, he ransomed us. And Father, as we hear what Paul says in Philippians 2, we pray that you would make us humble servants. You would make us like Jesus. Give us unity. Help us to count each other as more significant than ourselves. Help us to be willing to serve. Lord, be honored as we sing. 
Uh, we're going to sing about gospel truths, about your character and your grace and your goodness and uh, your worthiness to be praised. So, Lord, be honored as we lift our voices. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.